Craig Brown and Dan Biston are smart enough to know better. And welcome to episode 32 of Smart Enough to Know Better, a podcast of science, comedy, and everything? Ignorance. Hooray! Ignorance. I'm showing, not telling. <laughs> that's right. Of course, that's Dan Beeson talking to you. And right now, this is Greg Wire also talking to you with a frog oh, in Oh, are his you throat. talking? You sound like you swallowed Pardon? a quarry. It does. It's a, I suddenly had a, I got all choked up with emotion about episode 32. I was full of emotions. Are you going to try to tell me that 32 is an exciting number again? No, actually, no, it's pretty boring. But <laughs> I, um, I did find one kind of fun thing about it, one little mathematical sort of trickery thing, which I thought was quite cute. And that is the number 32 can be made up by 1 to the power of 1 plus 2 to the power of 2 plus 3 to the power of 3. So 3 by 3 by 3 is 27. Yes. And 2 by 2 is 4. Yes. And only 1, 1 is 1. So that's 27 plus 4 is 31, plus 1 is 32. 32! But anyway, enough of that. So madness. who have you got for us to interview this week? Well, that's... <clears throat> well, um, I've actually... Uh, sorry about this, but um, uh, I've already interviewed them. I thought uh, you promised never that? to do I that thought... again. Well, I'm begging special circumstances here, Dan. I was approached by the Brisbane Writers' Festival, which happens every September. That sounds vaguely seedy. I was loitering at a disreputable drinking establishment, <laughs> and I was approached by a writers' festival. <laughs> well, actually, it was out of, out of nowhere. The Brisbane Writers' Festival, which, for people who don't know, is a, a very large writers' festival here in Brisbane. Over 30,000 people uh, came to it this year, and they have non-fiction and fiction writers talking about all sorts of range of stuff, talking about their books and talking about topics. And I was approached, technically smart enough to know better, was approached and uh, asked, would we like to be the chair of some of their of their Hooray! Non I'd love to <laughs> of some of their of some of their non-fiction uh, talks. And I so I wrote when back, is it? And it was it happened in early September. Oh, so. we missed it. No, no, we didn't. We didn't miss it. Unfortunately, um, I did ask whether or not we could both do it. And they said, "Oh, well, no, that'd be weird. It can be one or the other." And uh, and they they already put my name down. So I got to do it. I'm sorry, Dan. So I was asked to chair a few of the non-fiction sessions. So there was uh, like our future world and and a few others as well with uh, Nobel prize-winning uh, authors, uh, like people in science. I mean, I mean, seriously clever people. And I was expected to not just sit there and, and yabber at them, but ask intelligent questions, leading conversations that people paid money to come and listen to. Now, this was all out of the blue. I was quite surprised. I didn't know where this came from. Uh, it took me a while to work out that it was one of our interviewees in the past, Dr. Joel Gilmore, is one of the chairs, and he sort of remembered us and went, oh, wait, hang on, those guys will be able to handle it. So I did this talk, and the one I'd like to talk about mainly about is our future world. We talked about the problems coming to us in the future and how maybe we might have to deal with these. It was a very, very interesting talk, and I asked the Brisbane Writers' Festival managers, could we use it for the podcast? And they, after looking around, they decided, yes, that was fine, and that's what we're going to be listening to today. We, we're very lucky. The Brisbane Writers' Festival, which you can find at brisbanewritersfestival.com.au, they said, yes, we can put it on there. And so you're going to be listening to, just so you know, I do say this, Past Me says a lot of this already, but I just want to make sure that you know the order, because Past Me was a bit of an idiot and didn't actually point out whose voice was whose. 
So when you hear people talking, the first one you're going to hear is me, but then you're going to hear a man by the name of Paul Gilding, and then a man by the name of Stefan Heikovic, and then John de Graaf. Uh, and, and all these people are excellent nonfiction authors who are very knowledgeable about the future world and what we're going to have to do to survive in it. And my name's Gregoire from the Brisbane podcast, the Smart Enough to Know Better. And today we're here to talk about our future world, and we're going to be discussing alternative futures, uh, the world that we, the world we live in, and how it's going to change. Now, George Santayana said that uh, very famously. I've written down to make sure I get it right. Here, of course, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And we've always learned that history is what we should be looking at and looking backwards, learning about what we have done, and therefore that should tell us what we should do in the future, but maybe this paradigm is about to break down because what we're facing nowadays could be something new and uh, unprecedented in the world and just looking back at history may not be enough to get us through the next 10 years, 50 years or 100 years. And today to discuss these ideas and other ideas as well, we have three panellists. I'd like you to uh, put your hands together for, first up, John de Graaf. And now I'll tell you why you're putting your hands together for him. <laughs> John DeGraff, it's polite anyway. John DeGraff is executive director of the Take Back Your Time, an organization challenging time poverty and overwork in the US and Canada, and a frequent speaker on issues of overwork and overconsumption and happiness in America. He's the co-author of What's the Economy For Anyway? There it is. And you should race out and buy it at the end of the session. And of course, the best-selling book, Affluenza, the All-Consuming Epidemic. And secondly, and hold your applause to laughter now, of course, the Paul Gilding. Uh, Paul Gilding is an independent writer, uh, comp corporate advisor, and advocate for action on climate change and sustainability. He is widely recognized as a global authority and thought leader on sustainability and business, and has worked with the chairs, CEOs, and executives of many leading global companies, including DuPont, Diego, BHP Billiton, and Ford. He now travels the world, as he is today, uh, alerting people to the global economic and ecological crises now unfolding around us. Uh, his book, The Great Disruption, has been published to wide acclaim and to much applause from you people. <laughs> and in the centre is Stefan Heikovich. He's a principal research scientist with the CSIRO and spends his time thinking about how people make decisions and plans for an uncertain future. His academic qualifications from the University of Queensland and University of New England are in the fields of geography, economics and decision theory. Uh, basically, he is a bit of a clever at everything. Uh, and, and, and a very useful person to have here on our panel. Uh, Stefan has published widely in international scientific literature as well. Please make him welcome. So I'm just no gonna... book yet. But no book yet. Yeah, working on a book. Oh, goodness Next me. year this time. Oh, there you go. Oh, there you go. Oh, you heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to start up. Let's start at the very, very basics. Just to get everyone on the same floor here, one of the main issues and challenges we actually face in this uncertain future, is it uncertain to start off, or is it all clear sailing from here point, or is something could go wrong, and uh, what could go wrong at this point? Anyone like to start with that? Nice, simple one. Yeah, I'll jump in. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> that's one of my specialty, really, what goes wrong. Um, look, I think things are going to change, and I think that the, the moment we're at in history is really important in that regard, because we can now say... Things are going to change not because of political choice or preference or because of certain trends that are unpredictable, but something which is very predictable, which is the science of you know, the ecosystem and resource constraint. 
And that, that's a very different kind of idea than political change. You know, socialism came because of an idea. You know, free markets emerged because of an idea. And the change we, we're going to see now is, I think, guaranteed. Not where it will go, but that, that it's going to happen. Because of the, you know, the phrase I use, that my book is the earth is full. Right? And that sort of rhetorical way of saying what the science says, which is that we're overusing resources to such an extent that it's unsustainable in a literal sense. And when things are unsustainable, which we kind of think of as a philosophical kind of term, mm. when things are unsustainable, they stop. Right? And what's going to stop in this case is not kind of, you know, our, our, it's not a values question or an attitudes question or a moral question, although it has many moral attributes to it. It's going to stop because it's not possible for it to go on. Mm. And I think the kind of basic, just to kind of summarise why that's so to me absolutely inevitable, is the idea of the growth economy. And that is that we currently use about 1.5 planets worth of resources to drive our current economy. And the assumptions that we're all, you know, accepting as fact, mm. is that China will follow our model, then India will follow, then Africa will follow, and by 2050 we'll all be kind of rich and happy. Mm. Right? And what that looks like is an economy which uses four or five Earths. Mm. Right? Now, the problem with that is not <clears throat> that it's bad for polar bears. It is very bad for polar bears, but that's their problem. Um, <laughs> and it is a very big problem for them, believe me. But our problem is that it's not going to happen. Mm. Right? Not that it wouldn't be nice or that it's bad for the ice caps. Our problem is that that model is so profoundly broken that it can't happen. And that means this model that we assume of growth, of consumerism, of more stuff makes you happy, all the stuff that you know, John's written a great book about, mm. you know, is, is going to change because it doesn't work anyway for us, but it's going to change because it has to change because there's mm. no choice. And that, to me, is sort of the, the foundation on which the, the current moment in history is built. Mm. Okay. So uh, can I just throw it to you, Stefan? Um, what, well, that's um, one idea of the trends. What sort of trends are we actually facing here? What sort of things, what are the changes we can see in the next 100 years, let's say? Look, I reckon a lot of that is right. Um, we've opened up this um, resource in CSIRO which looks at trends that are influencing the world and how people live, and it contains a lot of environmental resources that are declining in availability, whilst demand for those resources is rising quite sharply. So the world population, October last year, crossed the 7 billion persons threshold, and that levels off over uh, just under 10 billion people. Uh, and world economic growth in the developing world is continuing at 4% per year. So the economy is getting bigger and economic growth is associated with greater consumption. However, there's some sort of interesting twists in the story. I don't think it is as simple as running out of stuff and it's all falling off the edge of a cliff. And it struck me a bit looking into the problem of food security. So I think that's one of the biggest ticket items for the world to think about now is finding enough food for everyone to eat. And tonight when we go to bed, one billion people will be hungry. Um, and if we look into agricultural food production, we lose 12 million hectares every year of agricultural land. If we kept that in production, we'd have made 20 million tonnes of grain. Uh, so it looks like a crisis on the production end. But I think the statistics are around two kilograms of food per person per day is produced by the earth. And we lose, we waste about 35% of the food we make. So about 35% of the food we make, it's wasted. And when you start to look into the food security question, say pick Africa, I think it starts to become apparent that no one in Africa ever starved you didn't enough food. It's always been uh, governance, corruption, distorted markets, um, war, uh, dislocation of peoples, things that could have been unavoided. That place can easily make enough food. And I think most of the modelling for the world shows that as global population levels out at 10 billion persons, that's where it, it, it doesn't just keep going up linearly, it will level off because as people get wealthy, things start to level off. I think uh, we have evidence 
there that the world can produce enough food easily to feed itself. Um, we have one billion people in the world who are overnutritioned and one billion people who are undernutritioned. And uh, that, that brings out a story to me that's similar in minerals and in energy, that, that it's not clear where these thresholds to production actually lie. And there's so much room for substitution of input production factors. So some modelling that was done earlier in CSIRO did keep on showing Australian industry falling off the edge of a cliff as water got scarce and energy got scarce. But what it failed to, to acknowledge, I think, and the, move, the new territory we need to move into is as a, as a rice farmer finds that water is scarce and very costly, they don't always just keep farming rice. They switch to more efficient irrigation infrastructure or they switch to a different crop altogether. So many different things start to happen out there in the economy as prices change. So I do agree with the arguments that we do face resource scarcity dilemmas and that's certainly a big part of the, the work we've looked at. But there's complexity in there in that it's not a, it's not a cliff we're heading for. There's a lot of adjustment to happen. And, I, and mostly as we look at a resource scarcity question, if we get better at sharing what we got, we wouldn't actually have a problem. Can I ask a question? Of course. That was your job. No, 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 feel free. Yeah. I'll sit back. I'll ask him, not no, you. That's so. I, thank goodness. Right. So, um, absolutely right that, yeah. that there is no issue of the capacity of us to produce what we need for the current economy. Right. But in terms of you looking at trends, do you see trends in terms of our behaviour? You talked about, yes, it's always about governance or politics or conflict or yeah. corruption. Well, we're going to have governance conflicts and yeah. corruption and conflict. So do you see trends in actual performance that suggest we are moving towards a rapidly more efficient economy that can keep up with 4%, 5% growth? Yeah, I'm, there is something here that might be of value, and this crosses into your uh, work as well. And this is a tendency, as people get wealthier, we switch our uh, expenditure patterns, our discretionary expenditure goes away from uh, products like shirts and shoes, <coughs> So once you reach a certain income threshold, you put more of your money into holidays, theatre, uh, going to a restaurant and non... The Brisbane Writers Festival. Brisbane Writers <laughs> Festival. Like this whole event here, there's minimal material consumption going on, uh, but we're all having a fun time and exchanging a good... I don't know if people had to pay to get in, but, but maybe that, that where there is a tra transaction involved, that's what we tend to see. Data from the OECD on material consumption in an economy shows that as it gets wealthier, uh, units of material per dollar of GDP output goes down. So that means we get more efficient with production technologies, but it also means people switch into this experiential space. And one of the mega trends we identify in our report, Our Future World, which came out on Wednesday, is called Great Expectations. And my wife came up with the title for that one because the team was stuck in calling it um, uh, a Michael Jackson song, The Way You Make Me Feel, which would have been a disaster because Syro would be much more closely aligned with uh, Charles Dickens. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, that, uh, I explain the story afterwards, but it was the right title because it, it tried this, this report has these catchy names for the, these global megatrends, and it, it explains this shift into experiential purchasing, and we reckon mm -hmm. there's data to support that from the retail sector and from other, uh, other areas. And as 1.02 billion persons in Asia will cross the income thresholds out of poverty and into the middle income classes, we reckon they're going into this experiential mm -hmm. space. So maybe we move into more experiences and less products, but I don't know. I think that the next question, question is what yes. you're telling us we should do, are we going to do it? John. Well, I guess I'm a little less optimistic right. than you are about that. Uh, it is true that people do, as their incomes grow, find that they get more satisfaction often from, from uh, less uh, obviously material uh, 
purchases and things like that, but travel is a big one of them. We have a thing that's called the Givon's Paradox. It was understood a long time ago, and that is you can have various kinds of things where your inputs uh, decrease uh, for, for each additional gain in GDP and so forth. We make cars, for example, that get much better mileage than they used to get. But as a consequence, people tend to drive more. And so when you look at overall consumption, it actually rises, even if consumption per uh, unit of GDP does not. And uh, a another example of that is that I have lots of friends who, and like me, who walk places, who bicycle places, who like not these experiences like this and so forth. When I look at their ecological footprint, it's an interesting thing take place. These people all like to travel a lot. Mm -hmm. And their ecological footprint is actually higher than the ecological footprint of those Americans where I live who drive to work, who do things like that, because those folks are not flying all over the place. I know that for a fact. If I calculate my ecological footprint, air travel is uh, one of the biggest parts of it. But the other thing is that I, uh, I think this is centered, has been centered very much on the environment. I tend to believe that in addition to the problems that we face for, from environmental sustainability, we are increasingly facing enormous problems in social sustainability. We have been fueling this change, this growth, all of this through a pattern of uh, economics that, that favors more and more one group of people over another. So what we're seeing in almost all developed countries is an immense expansion in the gap between rich and poor. Uh, we're also seeing various things like uh, increasing social separation, disconnection. Uh, in the United States, the incidence of uh, depression has gone sky high. The incidence of loneliness, the uh, American Association for uh, Retired Persons uh, and uh, Time Magazine published a study recently done by the University of California at Los Angeles that the incidence in chronic loneliness Amer among Americans over the age of 45 has nearly doubled from 20 to about 37 percent of that population in the last 10 years alone. That's a, that's a, so, well, that's a six pack. When, when we look at this in a holistic framework and we understand, uh, Ivan Illich, the famous uh, uh, Austrian philosopher, once said that the, the, the uh, social impacts of growth, the negative impacts of this obsession with growth, would get us before the environmental impacts. I'm not sure he's right, but they're both leading us to a crisis. Just jump in on that, because I think that's really important if you think about all that together. You know, we're, we're unsustainable ecologically, we're unsustainable socially, and what we're hearing from the people in the financial markets is that we're unsustainable financially as well. But the system, at the moment, is only working because of incredible increases in debt. Right? And we're kind of in this, what I call the growth debt trap, that we have this incredible levels of debt because we socialise all the losses of the... Goldman Sachs and the like, and took them on board very nicely on, on their behalf, mm. and they've now become government debt, right? So we have this incredible government debt that we could only pay off if we grow the economy, mm. right? And, but to grow the economy, you have to increase ecological and resource consumption, and, as John's pointing out, growing the economy now drives inequality, which then leads to social unrest. And so whichever way we go, we're kind of trapped. If we grow the economy, we increase ecological impact and social impact. If we don't grow the economy, we'd drown in debt. And that's why I think we're kind of at this point where I would argue change is inevitable. And I mean, it's not, and as Stefan says, that's not all bad news because we, we can change quite dramatically. 
and we have the capacity to do things very differently mm. and we know what we need to do. The great joy of 50 years of talking about this and not doing anything is we have really excellent plans. <laughs> um, and we've, we've kind of... Mm. We've analysed it to death, mm. right, and we know exactly what we need to do. So actually just doing it, I think, is important. And your point about the history there mm. is important in that you know, the essence of my kind of argument in, in, in the Great Disruption is that the crisis is coming, but don't panic, mm. <clears throat> because we're really good in a crisis. Let me add one little thing, just tell you a story uh, very quickly. Uh, the great, my personal hero is a fellow named David Brower. He's the founder of the international organization Friends of the Earth. He built the organization, the Sierra Club in the United States, probably the most famous U.S. environmentalist of the 20th century. In the late 1970s and early 80s, he used to go around giving a little talk he called the Sermon. And in the sermon, what Brower does is he compresses the age of the Earth, estimated by scientists at about 4.6 billion years, into the seven biblical days of creation. And when you do that, you find that life appears on the planet sometime on Tuesday, that the dinosaurs don't arrive until the last day, Saturday at about 10 in the morning. They have a long run. They last until <laughs> about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. At three minutes before midnight on the final day, human beings arrive on the planet. At a quarter of a second before midnight, the Industrial Revolution begins. At one one-hundredth of a second before midnight, this thing we call the consumer society that we've been part of since World War II takes over. In that one one-hundredth of a second, we have used about, we have used more resources than all human beings who ever lived in all history before that time. We have depleted our soils and fisheries by half. We are making species extinct, and we are changing the climate, not to mention other things. And Brower says there are people who say that what we have been doing for that last hundredth of a second can continue indefinitely. They are considered smart, reasonable people. They have power in the society, but they are stark, raving mad. <laughs> This is all the idea of the economics of scarcity. So there's only so much that we can dig out of the ground that we can grow and that sort of stuff. And we're always increasing people. Is it possible that uh, technology is going to... I mean, you hear about things like companies like SpaceX and these sort of people were going, actually, the solar system's full of a lot of minerals and things that we can go and get now if we can send someone up to go and get these things. This yeah. technology is within our grasp. Yeah. So would that change the paradigm entirely if suddenly... All the gold you wanted, or mm -hmm. all the all the all the gypsum you ever needed, you just go grab the rock and bring it back. Is that going to change it remarkably? I pick up on this one because I, I did the opening talk at the annual TED conference in Long Beach this year, and I, so I'm kind of the antichrist for this idea. <laughs> and, and I was sort of brought in deliberately because Peter <laughs> Peter Diamandis, who is the guy who runs the X Prize and the SpaceX mm. program, mm. was sort of contrasted with me, and we were kind of the joint opening speakers of it. And, and it's completely a crock of shit. I mean, it's like, it's... <laughs> to put it bluntly. And it's what I call sort of faith-based belief in markets and, techno and, and technology, mm. right? It's not fundamentally wrong in the sense that technology is incredibly useful for us, mm. right? And, and we will do great things. That's the reason Stefan's talking about in terms of technology and, and John's talking about in terms of, you know, quality of life and so on. Technology will be hugely beneficial for us as we move forward. But the idea that we can go from here to there mm. through a growth economy, right, and the markets will somehow magically fix this is a faith-based belief because it's not rational, mm. right? It denies the basic science of all this stuff. And, you know, the, the kind of logic that 
We're not talking about going to space in 10,000 years, which you can imagine, mm. to get minerals and resources. We kind of need to do it next decade, mm. right? And there's a lot of people here, you know? We're going to mm. move for three or four billion people from here to somewhere else, or else move that stuff back to here, mm. right? We've just put a robot on Mars, which is incredible, <laughs> incredible. I mean, it really is quite extraordinary, but the idea that we can then just go and land... You know, mining companies on Mars, <laughs> right? <clears throat> Dig it up mm. and send it back on spaceships, right? Without using any fossil fuels, mm. right? It's just like hello, you know. So, so it's this, it's this sort of completely. You know, imagine how it went down at TED, right? I was like, you know, the least popular guy in history at TED, but, but it was like really, it's just completely absurd. And just to bring that back to kind of a bit of simpler logic in terms of the short term, the market faith. Um, idea about oil, for example, that oil won't run out and peak oil won't happen because prices will fix that. Mm. <clears throat> yes, it's true that if oil prices went to two or $400 a barrel, we would respond and we would find remarkable new technologies, great efficiencies and would change. But in the meantime, if oil prices go to two or $400 a barrel, the economy will tank, mm. right? An extra billion people will go hungry, the food system will collapse and we'll go to war. So it's not... Mm. The markets don't work in that kind of smooth and gentle way they work, you know, with, with crashes and booms. And therefore, this sort of transition we're talking about, and I'm, I am absolutely optimistic about our capacity as a species to get through this, but we should recognise there's a crisis and a crisis response coming in that process that we have to get through first. OK. Anyway, anything to add to that? I think uh, markets are good servants but bad masters. So maybe I echo that a bit, in that markets are incredibly powerful at getting us all here clothed and fed today and houses. Markets are in there in the background... Baker didn't wake up at 5am and make us bread because he liked us. It was because of a transaction, but there was mutually beneficial goods being exchanged. However, there's this big area of market failure, and oil prices could be one. Peak oil has to be true. We have to run out of the stuff, and we may not be able to transition it quickly because we're so dependent on it. Modern agriculture pretty much converts fuel uh, oil into food. That's, mm. that's how it works. Uh, but a lot of other things rely on oil. So there is this area of market failure. We need to harness the benefits of markets. I think in the argument we've also got to look at um, the billions of poor people out there in the world uh, who live on less than $1.25 a day. This number has fallen as a portion of the total globe's population from, I don't know the exact figures, maybe somewhere in the 40% down to in the 20% over the past few decades, which is a major significant achievement. The relative number of people in the earth living in absolute po poverty has declined. Um, life expectancy for the vast majority of people in the vast majority of regions has gone up. Infant mortality for the vast majority of people in the vast majority of regions has gone down. Um, modern technology is one of the key drivers behind um, our increasing longevity. Um, a lot of people wouldn't be here in the room today if it wasn't for medical technology that saved their lives. And you know, when we needed caesarean births for our kids, bring on the technology. It was fantastic. Um, that's what's behind um, the the decreasing levels of infant mortality. So it's, it's valuable and it's easy to knock technology, but when you need it, you really will want it. Um, it plays an important role. But I think the other flip side is we don't want to exaggerate it. I was at a seminar on um, peak oil a while ago, which was presented really well, and the guy had these two slides, and it was the mayor of a local council up in front of his staff, and he was saying, I need a piece of technology that's so advanced it has no carbon emissions, it's low cost, uh, doesn't cause congestion, uh, and is, is easy and affordable to people, what, what could we do? And the next slide was a bicycle. And to, me, <laughs> to me, that got the point across really quite powerfully, that it is actually, there's an awful lot of technology currently available. Carbon emissions is an interesting one in that uh, 
If we look at them, we, we all think that meeting greenhouse gas targets is hugely expensive, but there's a uh, marginal cost curve, which is an S-shaped thing. Mm -hmm. and there's a bunch of things we can do, including screwing in more energy-efficient light bulbs at home, which save us money and reduce emissions at the same time. And bicycles is another one. Riding to work uh, has health benefits, carbon emission benefits, and it's cheaper at the same time. There's actually a lot of things we can do with readily available technology that's cheap that gets us over the line. But I don't discount the, the benefits of technology uh, overall in terms of delivering some really important human quality of life progress. Yeah. I'd like to, uh, and I agree with you, Greg, uh, excuse me, uh, Stefan. Yeah. I agree with you uh, about this, and obviously we have had enormous gains as a result of, of technology. There's another side to this, though, and, and it has everything to do with how we use technology. That other side is that we are increasingly creating technologies which will absolutely reduce the need for labor, for work. Robotics is coming in in a big way. Uh, we were told in the 60s that by the year 2000, we'd all live in a leisure society where we work 15 to 20 hours a week because of all of this stuff. Well, this stuff is coming. It's coming more and more. And the problem is we have to figure out what to do with this. If we continue on the present pattern, which is to assume that we can continue to work people 40, 50, 60 hours a week and employ everybody uh, mm. in an age when we can produce things with so much less labor time, then the only answer is to produce more and more and grow and grow. The only other answer is to make take very, very careful steps to begin reducing working hours, sharing work, uh, giving people more leisure time that they can spend creating their own gardens, breaking down their disconnection with each other. Very, very good things. To me, this is an absolutely essential step. So when I come to here from the U.S., where we are the sort of master workaholics, uh, and I'm, an issue that I've been fighting for some time, and the first thing I read in your paper is this woman, Gina Reinhart, <laughs> telling you all to get out of the bars and go work longer and harder, I say, this is a clear example that we're, we're not getting the kind of signals we need hmm. to solve these problems. But the, we, good, the, like, the good news oh, on that, sorry, is, is that is that therefore we know what we need to do, hmm. right? So we know how to design an economy, right, which does involve less work and less money and less stuff and more happiness, right? Which I don't know, but we know what to do. So the only thing missing is, I guess, the decision to act hmm. is the point. So can I get you all to write me a letter to my boss saying you can cut my work by half but keep yeah. my pay at the same level? No, <laughs> because the, the, package, the package deal is... The things that make you happy, and this is really clear in, in John's book and lots mm. of the research in this area, the things that make you happy right, are not stuff that you buy with money. Mm. Right? They're things that take you time. Right? Mm. So what you need is more time and less money. So what mm. the letter I write for your boss is to <laughs> cut your hours by half and your pay by half. Right. Right? And you have to write your own letter to the bank to explain that sort of transition. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, seriously, the things that we do, and there's a great study done by the US Office of Science in terms of the global research, social science research in terms of life, quality of life and happiness, and to the five ways of well-being. Mm. And they're things like, you know, being healthy and active, ride mm. a bicycle, yep. right? Learning new things by John's book. 
Like mine, if you like, as well. Um, <laughs> and Stefan, of course, next year. Buy an advanced copy today if you want. <laughs> Guarantee. Just give him money because you'll, you'll yeah. be, you won't miss it. He'll, you'll get an experience, you know. but not right. a product. Actually, so. <laughs> can, I, can I tell a very quick story that mm. illustrates Paul's point? And, and you may not have to reduce your salary by half because you'll be more productive in that half mm. time that you're that you're working. But a county in California, uh, an experience that I just uh, uh, reported on as a reporter and talked to the work. It's called Amador County, a small county in the state of California. 2009, the Cal state of California has a $35 billion budget deficit. It has to pay less out to its counties for their services. So in this small county, the conservatives, the Republicans, decide that what they're going to do is reduce their working hours. They don't want to lay people off. And so they go to the, to the, the workers' union and they say, we're going to cut you to a four-day work week. You're going to work nine hours a day, 36 hours a week, 90% time, and we're going to cut your wages by 10% in order to save money. The immediate union response was, you know, with people always believing that money is what makes them happy, is you can't do this. They had protests in the street. We had a contract. This is appalling. We can't possibly live with 10% income, less income, and so forth. The county supervisors, who are on the opposite point of view of mine, they're, they're, you know, the Republicans, said, well, sorry, we don't want to lay people off right now, so you're going to do this for two years. You don't have a choice. But in two years, you'll have a choice whether if... If we don't have the money, you can choose whether you want to stay on a four-day work week with less money or you want to go back to five days with full money and we lay people off. Two years comes and the, they, they go and say, what do you want to do, folks? I thought the union would say, oh, we want to stay with No, the union says, our workers want their money. We want to go back to the five-day week. And the county says, okay, and we're going to lay off 10% of the workforce. Then the workers find out that they're going to go back to work on Friday. Who decided this? How did you do, do this? We never decided this. They call for a recall of the union leadership, and the union says, whoa, 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 we were only doing what we thought you wanted. The workers are saying, I like Fridays. I go fishing on Fridays. I, I do things with my family on Fridays. And the union says, all right, we'll vote on this. But the county says, you have to do one or the other. You can't have a, a you know, we keep the offices open on Friday or we don't. So the union has a vote. Seventy-one percent of the vote hmm. of the workers vote to stick with the forty-hour, uh, the four-day work week at less money, because they actually find out when they experience it that money isn't the key, and that time is really valuable. And they gain in their health, and they gain in many other ways, and they consume less. Yeah, and this is a very consistent pattern of all the people who kind of force themselves to do this for other reasons. They end up saying, "This actually, my life's improved as a result." Yeah. So, okay, so we've had, uh, like, there's a change coming whether we want to have it or not, uh, and we've got a feeling that maybe a level of change, we're not terribly sure. So it seems a little bit negative, as in everyone in the room is going to hide in a bunker and you know, get a lot of guns and food together and, you know, <laughs> turns into mad mags. But uh, I'm just wondering, is that, is that it? Is, it? is that the end of story? We just write it off, end of human history? Or yeah, look, I, can we get out of it? Absolutely we can. Mm. And if you look at history, we, we do, actually, mm. consistently... <laughs> as individuals and as companies, as organisations and as nations, right, we put it off and we put it off and we put it off as long as we possibly can. Then we deny the need to put it off, <laughs> to not the need to act. Then we put it off a bit longer mm. and then we go, oh, shit, now we've got to do it, mm. right? And then we do it, right? And it tends to be crisis-driven. Yeah. Personally, it can be a, a health impact or it can be a financial crisis, but we do consistently well. I always think about Churchill... I quote Churchill a lot in my book, which is kind of funny given, you know, on climate change issues. 
but it's very, very consistent at World War II, right? which is the evidence was overwhelming of the need to change, i.e. to fight against Hitler. Mm. Right? The, the data was absolutely conclusive. Right? There was incredible not denialism and avoidance of that because it was expensive and because it was going to cost lives and you know, mm. maybe we could avoid it. And besides, you know, we didn't like Poland. The French aren't that nice anyway. Maybe he'll, <laughs> <coughs> maybe he'll come down and go left rather than going right and you know, yeah. she'll be right. And then, you know, and Churchill was ridiculed Mm. Right, as a militarist, as you know, we can't afford to act in this way, then suddenly bang it turned. Mm. Right? And absolutely remarkable things happened incredibly quickly. Mm. And that I think is I mean, yes, the world's changed and it's not the perfect comparison, but it's the best one we've got, where when we decide to change, we can change really quickly. And it really importantly on this issue, mm. as Stefan said, the resources are available, we have enough stuff. Right? We as John's book talks about, we can design an economy that works differently. So we know we can do it. We know how to do it. We know we can afford to do it. We just have to, have to decide to do it. And that's why I think the crisis is actually really important, not because it's the end of the world or the end of civilization, because I don't think it is. Right? Um, I think it's actually the beginning of civilization. In that sense, it's the moment we decide to do things differently. So what can... That's, that's very helpful. Very hopeful, which is good to hear. Uh, but what can we do? So that's the question. Yeah. What, mm. what are the things we can do? Because we do hear a lot of the time from, from um, people, uh, experts, saying, yes, we should change, but, but never how we change mm -hmm. and what we need to do. So I'd like to throw it over to you guys. We've got to change our consumption patterns. We've got to, we've got to start to understand and, and move into the space of realising that increased consumption doesn't make us happy necessarily. As part of our work, we reviewed published studies that are done out there that correlate consumption and materialism with people's levels of happiness. And there were nine published studies in good journals that all found higher levels of materialism and consumption led to unhappiness. Yeah. And another four have come out more recently that show experiences lead to happiness. Now, I purchased an experience yesterday, which was an unusual one, uh, and uh, it was something called the Stampede. Is that, no, it wasn't. But, uh, <laughs> uh, it was called the Stampede, right? It's this um, masochistic obstacle course. Has anyone heard of the Stampede? Has anyone done it? Right, so it was interesting to me because we're also working on the future of Australian sport, which is in another... But there is a shift in there in that lots of consumers, a lot of younger ones, are willing to pay, I think it was 95 bucks to go on this obstacle course where you get put underwater and mud thrown at you and you get stuck in these small pipes they have to wiggle out of and then at the end you get electrocuted. <laughs> Sounds great, yeah. yeah it was. So it was an experience that people were buying. Now, for what I don't really know if it was the right type of experience yet, but the material consumption wasn't all that big at it. Mm. There was a bit of electricity usage, but not, <laughs> not a big chart. You get another guy just riding a bike to yeah, generate that. You could That's ride fine. your bike to it. But I guess the argument is I, I do think there are signs out there. That I mean, this thing was huge. It had must have had tens of thousands of people, all in their, mostly in their 20s. Uh, doing this event and I think the evidence is there that people can see experiences as being better. When I explain it to, to students or in, in lectures about diminishing marginal returns to utility, I'll use the example of beer at the pub. And this is what we've got to, to recognise. If, we, if we've got on the y-axis here our level of happiness which is neutral when we enter the pub, extremely happy up here and very unhappy down here. And we have from beer zero to beer one, we'll get an increase in happiness because that's, that's nice. Beer two to three, uh, a bit more happiness. Three to four, a bit more. Four to five, it's starting to level off. <laughs> and then five to six, for a lot of people, it's coming back down. For some hardcore people, it still is, is on the rise. But it'll go down. You might get a second wind, but then it will really crash and burn. <laughs> you cannot have linear um, uh, increases in your well-being associated with increased beer consumption. It's got to be the case. But that goes for anything we're consuming out there. So 
it is an interesting, like the climate change one and the, the World War II story, the data and the evidence is so overwhelming that this shift makes sense. We can ride bicycles, we can live differently, we can do a lot of things that increase our quality of life at the same time deal with the resource consumption dilemmas in front of the world. So there seems to be a clear win-win. What's, what's the break? Why doesn't it happen? I don't know. That's, that's my next question I want to yeah. put forward. I mean, the, I'm listening to the audience making a lot of um, agreement noises and, hmm, yes, hmm, and nodding, uh, yeah. and, and, which is good. But these people are probably quite literal. Not, not to the stampede, by the way. No, no, no. no. That's a, that's a, it may be, though, that you can, can keep getting happier consuming enough beers to get cirrhosis of the liver. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the limits maybe don't nice. come soon enough. Here. Um, but our audience, I think, uh, are, are probably quite literate. Brisbane Writers Festival, I'd assume. So they're obviously very attractive, so I'm, I'm just putting it up there. That's it. See? There you go. Um, so, uh, I didn't want to say it. No, 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 no. Sorry. Someone had to break the ice with the audience. That's fine. That's my job. Now, the, the point here, though, is, is do, um, how do we tell the average punter in the street? This is the thing. There's a lot of people who go, oh, we, all, we all know this, like climate change, 90% of Australians think that it should actually be something we're working towards, but our political... Uh, uh, elite don't seem to want to follow that. Uh, if you, as you said before, the, the unions didn't want to, to change over, John. How, how do we get the right people and the right people are people who can actually change things uh, to, to think in this way? Mm. Paul, you're working on that. Yeah, look, I, yeah, I do, and I'm working on a lot. And I think the it is about translating the issues into a workable, usable kind of language. Right? So, so in the case of you know the work around um, quality of life. You know, I go and do talks to all sorts of different audiences in business and, and the community. And I say, look, who, you know, who wouldn't, if you really put your mind to it, given the world's going to fall apart if we don't, who couldn't reduce their consumption by 10% next year? Right? You really put, put off a few purchases, just not, not, not a dramatic aesthetic lifestyle, just 10% less stuff. And, of course, the answer is, if we put our mind to it, we could all do that. Right? Buy a bit of a smaller one of these or don't, don't do that one for a while, delay it, etc. So 10% is kind of easy to do. Now, who wouldn't like to have an extra five weeks holiday next year? Right? So an extra five weeks holiday is like really, really appealing. And 10% less stuff, it doesn't seem so scary. So I think it's about taking all these ideas in a very practical sense and putting it into, into, uh, into ways that people can understand and can respond to today. Because we are doing this, by the way, and we are spending a lot less money. Right? We're saving more. It's a big increases in savings rates. <laughs> Right? We are moving into an era of austerity. People think the future doesn't look so rosy anymore. They're being more, more cautious. Mm. That's a good thing. Right? Credit card debt is going down. Right? It's not going down because they care about the future of the ecosystem. It's going down because they're nervous they can't pay the debt. Mm. Right? A correct response to the mm. current economy. So I think we can do that in lots of different ways. And we can, you know, the title of John's book is, is you know, what's the economy for anyway? So let's think about that. And I know this is the sort of politics of this issue. Right, it, I don't think he does it for me. It's you know, writer's deal. Is that um, <laughs> <laughs> is the just encouraging you guys off later? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, like, what is the economy for? What do we really need to have? And we've discussed those sort of principles about time and quality of life and so on. But jobs, right? Jobs are really, really important. It is the foundation stone of most people's meaning, right? Of their sense of self worth. Right, of how they get their income and so on. We don't run the economy to create jobs. We run the economy to grow GDP. Mm. And actual fact, because of robotics and a whole bunch of things and mining and so on, doesn't create many jobs. So that's not a good way to grow the economy. So this idea that we should grow the economy is profoundly wrong for individuals. So let's talk about jobs. Mm. Let's talk about the fact that you know, more people work in McDonald's, by the way, than the coal, than the coal mines in Australia. Mm. 
right? Mm. And I'm not saying that either of those are necessarily better for you, um, <clears throat> although uh, arguable. But the, the point of that is that let's think about what we need to achieve here in terms of economic activity and let's frame our focus in terms of investment and policy towards those things. So we don't want more efficient businesses that employ less people right, and create more monies for GDP. We actually sometimes want less efficient businesses that create more jobs right, and look after people better. And then, as John says, they have to work a bit less in terms of time and, ha and have more time and less money. So we can explain all these big picture principles in ways that people can relate to, and that's about politics, Right, but it's also about economics and the role of business, I think, in leadership in this area. I can GDP is like a speedometer. It doesn't tell you whether you're going the right way, just how fast things are moving. So more GDP and mm. it's just it's one indicator. There are certainly some positive signs uh, around the world that people are kind of getting that message. And uh, I was at a meeting at, at the United Nations uh, uh, the 2nd of April of this year, uh, called It was the first high-level UN meeting on well-being and happiness, the subtitle, Toward a New Economic Paradigm. 800 people from all over the world coming together to say, how can we actually make the, the purpose of our economies well-being and, and sustainable well-being and not simply grow, growing the GDP. The United States government was notably absent, by, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> noticeable by its absence. Uh, Australia was represented, however, and, and, but it, it is a good sign. The conversation is really starting to happen. Even the conservative Sarkozy invited Stiglitz and Sen and other economists to come together to talk about a new way to measure how well we're doing as an economy to, as a substitute for, for GDP. So I think there are some positive things happening. The, the, the question is whether they can happen fast enough and whether we can somehow restrain these very powerful economic interests with unlimited amounts of money, particularly in the United States, who are pouring that money in to try to uh, muddy the waters and make sure that none of this occurs. I got one. I totally buy the arguments, but I've got a niggling concern when I think about this sometimes, and that that concern relates to the, the many billions of poor people who are lifting themselves out of poverty by a rapid economic growth. And this has happened in China. China has really cracked its poverty issue. Uh, the statistics are clear. Uh, and a lot of people have moved out of impo impoverished situations and, and are rising in India. At current trends, they'll go from 5% middle class to 40% middle class. So this is a whole 580 million people who can now eat food and have clean water. and, and I, I sometimes wonder that when you look at what works about getting poor people out of poverty, economic growth sometimes works. So I buy these arguments, but then I wonder as well, maybe it is doing something important. Maybe you know, if I was uh, really made prime minister of one of these poorer countries, or even in a big country like India, would I really be willing to abandon economic growth if I sat down and looked at the data and said, well, what really works in terms of lifting people out of poverty? Um, but, the, right. but no, I, I think that's right, yeah. uh, uh, Seven. But the, yeah. the Chinese also recognize that that comes with unintended consequences. Yeah. One of them, which I hear all the time, is that just the level of sort of rampant and crass materialism mm -hmm. and not uh, a happier necessarily society, uh, increasing I issues in health and suicide and, and other kinds of things. The Chinese were the first country to immediately buy my book for translation as soon as it came out, and it's because the Chinese government actually understands that, yes, the growth can do some good things, but it really needs to be tampered with 
uh, some sort of change in values so that once we get enough and once we lift those people out of poverty, we don't necessarily have to see them all adopting suddenly the U.S. lifestyle. But also I think this is, you know, your comment really goes to the, <clears throat> the sort of central idea which I think we need to leave behind, which is that this is, a, this is an option now, yeah, that we're going to end economic growth because we kind of think it might be a good idea hmm. to end it. What I'm saying is, you know, like people always say, well, how can you, Paul, deny the people of India and China their right to grow? Um, so I'm not denying their right to grow, I'm just explaining the laws of physics. Right? <laughs> That's a very, very different idea. Right? Because it's not that they shouldn't grow, it's not that I don't want them to grow, they're not going to be able to grow. Right? And that's a very, very different sort of concept. Because I mean, you can argue that it's 10 years away, I think it's like this decade personally, but you can argue it's 10 years away, 20 years away, 30 years away, but this model is not going to work. We are not going to have an economy which uses three or four planets worth of resources because they're not available. Mm -hmm. Despite all the levels of efficiency and the stuff to do, which is amazing, right, and very exciting, and solar and so on at the moment especially, but we're not going to get there in that way. So in the Chinese, because they're run by engineers... Right, is I think really looking at this in a mechanical, physical sense and saying, yep, doesn't work. And the amazing quotes from the Chinese leadership saying, you know, that ecological resource is the greatest threat, right, to human development, <laughs> right, in terms of what, where, our, where our economy is going. So they're making massive changes as a result. So I think the issue there, though, and the fundamental issue is that it really raises up as a whole uh, two chapters in my book on, on inequality and poverty, because I think this is where we end up at this point, by the way, is that, thank you. <laughs> It's the next $10 now. So that's... that's um, I just want to be happier. Make you happy. I just want to be happier. Yeah, yeah. I'll give you five. Okay. I'll give you five then. Um, <laughs> and a smile. <laughs> and a hug. <laughs> that's right. so, so the reason I focus on inequality and poverty is because that's like the next question. Right? If you accept that we're kind of in a zero-sum game here where the earth is so big, the economy can only be so big, Right, then this basic idea that we've had for decades now, which is, look, I know it's not fair that we're richer than you are, but if we all get richer, right, I'll be insanely, disgustingly rich and you'll be less poor. Um, and they say, OK, well, I'll be, I hate you being rich, but I'm less poor, that's probably OK. Right? If we suddenly wake up one day and say, actually, we can't all be disgustingly rich, and, in fact, if you get disgustingly rich and buy a private aeroplane, it means I haven't got enough food anymore because it's a closed system, that's a very different conversation. Right, and then you have to talk about sharing. You have to talk about more equitable global solutions to resource constraint. You have to have a very, very different conversation. And that's a really exciting time, right? Because that's when we have the opportunity to really think quite deeply about the issues after a few wars and stuff. In them. <laughs> I'd like to throw it open to the audience now, just have a few quick questions. Uh, gentleman at the back there, can you just wait till the microphone comes and then we can record your question as well? Thank you. The big question that I can see is how do we get our political leaders mm. to take notice of what's going on here in this room today? Well, I think the American politics is a really good example of that happening, so I think we'll let John answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, will you tell me how I'm supposed to answer that? <laughs> in the politics in the United States right now, at least for the next two years foreseeably is simply about the possibility of preventing things from getting worse. There's no possible way to move forward in the United States. Uh, my, in my view, if, if Barack Obama is re-elected, we can at least prevent things from getting worse. If he is not, then things will get worse much more rapidly. Mm -hmm. Look, I think there are actually good signs happening in politics outside the US. 
Um, <clears throat> which is, I mean, look, with respect to the, my American friends, the US is a very weird place right now, right? Because mm. they're, they're actually denying science. They're not kind of, they've gone beyond denying climate science. Mm. And they're kind of denying. I'm sort of waiting for the, for the new policy from the Republican Party saying that we shouldn't regulate the airline industry anymore because gravity is only really a theory anyway. <laughs> you know, it's like... It's, sort of, it's, it's got to this point of complete absurdity. And I actually celebrate that moment, right, apart from the incredible opportunities for humour, is that, is that, you know, as the evidence gets stronger and stronger that we need to change, the denial has to get stronger... Right, to explain why we're not changing. Right? And so we do reach points of absurdity, but Americans are not stupid. This is Harvard, Princeton, this is like people who put people on the moon, this is like an extraordinary country. Right? And so I think we are going to get this point globally where we break through on this issue, but it is going to require a crisis. It is going to require the system to break fundamentally, and then the denial ends. And when denial ends, as we saw in World War II and many other examples in history, then we get to work. And that's where I think the answer really is in the politics, is that we actually have to... You know, Churchill didn't... Churchill was ridiculed, it was a failure, you know, he wasn't going to be elected, and then suddenly he's one of the world's great wartime leaders, mm. right? Now, that, that Churchill didn't change. He was a depressed alcoholic before, he was a depressed alcoholic afterwards, right? <laughs> so, so that didn't change, the context shifted. And so our context needs to shift, and then the politics will follow. It won't lead. Another question? Uh, at the back over there, yes? Lady, uh, yes. Yes, please. Uh, this is a question to um, Paul. Your model, economic model of um, less work, more time and um, a job for everybody sounds remarkably to me like planned economies in the past that didn't really do it so well. Where did they go wrong? Yeah, really. For a start, planned economies were a complete catastrophe ecologically, right, because they had the same delusions about how the world works. And I actually, you know, when I was at Greenpeace and since then working in business, I'm a big advocate for markets, not markets a la Goldman Sachs, but markets a la, you know, people who have creativity and innovation, entrepreneurship to solve their own problems should be given support to do that. But, you know, Tom Friedman describes this as like the markets are like the tiger, which we're fascinated by and love to observe and to work with, but would like, to, like it to be caged. Right? And so I think the, the market needs to be, not the tigers don't need to be caged, but the market needs to be caged. Right? And that's where the role of planning and government comes in, is to put restrictions on the market to, to deliver certain outcomes. Right? And then let the market take the risk and do the entrepreneurship and do the stuff it does very well in allocating capital. So it's not a planned economy at all, but it is a controlled economy, whereas we have gone sort of so far off that track into this sort of markets completely out of control, this sort of market fundamentalism, really. The markets by themselves will fix things. No, markets are really good. They've been good for thousands of years. You know, we, we like entrepreneurship. We like reward for effort. We like reward for creativity. They're good things. But you have to restrict the commons. You have to restrict the use of resources. You have to have laws to constrain markets and achieve the outcome you want. Uh, question at the front, Ed? Yes? I was expecting, Mike. Thank you. You've talked a little bit about the good things from technology, but we're at a stage now with technological development where we can weaponise robots to be powerful, long-range mm. weapons. We can print the DNA for bacteria that's now got people's names printed and, you know, design new bacteria. We've got a whole lot of things that we can do with technology that put us on, you know, the brink of reasonable dangers, but we don't have the social discourse, we don't have the scientific education, we don't have the political system to deal with sudden technological changes. 
which we're on the brink of making. So how do you see our relationship with technology and our future? It's a good question, Mark. I heard a saying, human beings might have been smart enough to invent nuclear bombs, but are we going to be smart enough not to use them? And I don't know the answer. There's technology progress out there which could be hugely destructive to who we are. Our ability to innovate is incredible. Our ability to be wise about how we use the things we make, not sure. Um, every, every angle of technological development you look into creates those sorts of risks. But I don't think you can ever stop technology. It, you, you just can't stop that innovation. It's going to happen. It's, um, case put it forward then, uh, I agree, the, the idea of innovation, whether we have wisdom, but um, if you look back historically, the fact we're here, I mean, right from fire onwards, we have proven that we can cur curtail this, and though we always look at the next technology as terrifying, uh, and, and we, that will definitely kill us. I'm willing to bet there were people in caves who went, if we make fire, it will burn our caves down. Mm. The wheel will crush us to death. Um, I'm not making light of you, sir, at all. I'm really not. Uh, I just think that maybe we have to look and be a little bit more, more optimistic about the human. The, the average human is not a lunatic. But it's also why the techno-optimists are wrong, that, you know, that this is not just about technology, it's about humans' use of it. Mm. Right? So mm. we have to have behaviour change and value shift and attitude change to achieve the level of that, of that as we have through history, by the mm. way. We've had to be, change our political structures and our regulation to cope with technology. Mm. That's going to be even more essential for the reasons you're saying. We'll take one last question. Uh, yes. Quick hand there. Yes. <laughs> um, well, it's because this is a cultural event, and so I'd be interested in hearing some input. I know it's so much easier to say, a BMW, driving a BMW doesn't make me happy because I did it and I wasn't happy, but there's still a lot of people who haven't yet had the, you know, why should I believe you, haven't yet had the experience of having more than enough and it doesn't make them happy. And we've talked about politics and we've talked about technology, but are there cultural approaches to remind us to notice when we have mm. enough and when we can begin sharing. Obviously, books are a beginning, but you know, what, what other cultural approaches can we take to making this change a little mm. bit, I don't know, easier to take? What a good question. Um, well, I, I hope more of our writers and our novel, novelists, and I've, ha I've had the wonderful pleasure here at this this uh, uh, festival of being on panels with novelists, you know, uh, both of the other, who are writing about these kind of things, trying to get us to uh, change our values. Uh, I don't think the approach can ever be, oh, you shouldn't want a BMW because it's not going to make you happy. I don't think that works. I think what we have to do is say, what is the, what is the cost going to be f to you for all of that. What are the sacrifices that we are making now? Not, not you've got to sacrifice for the planet and all of this. That's not the issue. The issue is that we are making enormous sacrifices today in terms of well-being, in terms of health, in terms of overwork, in terms of disconnection, loneliness, depression. Those are the kind of things that people have to understand. If you could just have the BMW and there was no consequences, you'd probably be delighted. But there are consequences and there are costs. And I think it does require, it's like public health, you know, it does require campaigns. It requires us to educate each other, to celebrate certain types of behaviour, to celebrate austerity, to look at who we, who we kind of idolise. You know, there's a great campaign I have an ambassador for called Buy Nothing New Month. Mm. The idea that you wouldn't buy anything new for a month. Not, not a whole kind of life of giving up shopping, heaven forbid, mm. but like a, you know, just for a month. 
right? And the answer, of course, is people who do it suddenly find their credit card bills gone way down, they've had more time, mm. they've got less stress, and that wasn't so hard after all. That leads to changes in lifestyle overall. And that, to me, is really important. Is we, this won't, it, there will be a crisis, right, I think. There will be an economic crisis. We won't be able to afford to buy as much crap. Right? And then we'll say afterwards, actually, it wasn't so bad after all, actually. In fact, I never liked doing that before anyway. Mm. And so we kind of have that forced upon us. But it, it is absolutely also about us actively going out and talking about this, right? to engage our friends and our communities and talk about what's important, to celebrate the successes in this area. And, you know, as, as John's work in, in terms of time, we remind people that actually, you know, we can have a better life than this, and it's a choice that we make, as opposed to something we're kind of forced into by the system. One uh, a story I read about, it's kind of an unknown thing, but at least in the United States, and this is really true in, in most industrial countries, health actually improves during recessions and depressions. So uh, for every increase, actually, in 1% in unemployment in the United States that we saw since the recession, we actually saw a, a half a percent decrease in the adult mortality rate. People are actually healthier. Why are they healthier in recessions? Because they actually don't work as much. There's less overtime and all of that. P factories are not working at full levels and, and putting out the levels of pollution. People don't drive as much. There are less traffic death, deaths. There's less children's asthma <laughs> and other kinds of things. People actually have time, so they exercise more. They may not have the money, so they grow more of their, their own food, and they depend on each other more in these situations, so they have more, more social connection. So actually, we see improvements in health uh, during recessions. That doesn't mean we want recessions and we don't want unemployment, which is bad for the people who are unemployed. We want to, though, be able to continue those advantages when we get back into full employment, and we have to do that by, by sharing and shortening the hours that we work. We need to end it there. It's been a really fascinating uh, discussion. Can you give a round of applause to the students? And I'd just like to point out that uh, both Paul and John will be signing their books downstairs uh, straight after this talk as well. If you want to have a chat to them, maybe uh, discuss a few of the ideas with them as well. I'm sure they'd love to talk to you as well. And next year, Stefan, of course, will have his book as well. Thank you very much. Ah, oh, we're all going to die, Greg. We're all going to die. We've got to buy as many iPads as possible before they run out. <laughs> I think that's not really what they were saying. I think buying a lot of iPads is kind of the problem here. I mean, that's the thing. If everyone in the whole world becomes middle class and tries to live in the way that the middle class does in the West, then you need, what, eight, eight planets of materials to, to build everything. It's not possible. We need a major shift. But I like the idea that, that Stefan was saying. So we need that less humans. Less humans. All right, I'm starting my plans early. <laughs> uh, I think it's, I quite like Stefan Heikovic's take on it, which is we can make changes. There are inevitable changes, but the world won't be a terrible place. I mean, maybe it's a bit of optimism, but I think humans have got through this far okay, and I think we have the brains to continue going on okay. I think that if every person doesn't have access to an iPad, then that's a terrible place. <laughs> or a non-denominational tablet, of course. The surface is supposedly quite good. Oh, please. What are we, in the third world? <laughs> oh, damn you.
you apple aficionado you oh. <laughs> you love them so much you have been listening to Dan at smartenough.org and Greg at smartenough.org big thanks to the Brisbane Writers Festival for giving us permission to use that interview in its entirety if you're interested next year the Brisbane Writers Festival will be from the 4th to the 8th of September you can get in now and already start looking at interesting things that will be happening in other parts of the year around Brisbane in a literary fashion at brisbanewritersfestival.com.au If you have no interest in the podcast, then don't bother following us on Twitter at SE2KB or slash Smart Enough on Facebook. <laughs> and if you're a nihilist, then don't go into the forums because there's a whole bunch of other people in there talking about science stuff. And you don't want any of that guff. <laughs> I'm intrigued, actually. I would love to hear what our listeners have to think about that interview and whether they agree or disagree with John, Paul, and Stefan. Um, once again, jump into the forum and, think, and write what you think or just email us. And uh, I'd love to start that conversation. I think it was a very illuminating conversation. That's why I wanted to share with, with you on the podcast. Well, then you should go into the forum and start that conversation if you want to start that conversation. Goodness. You literally have to go and start that conversation. What the heck? Can I dare do such a thing? Yes. Dare mighty things! All right, thanks for that. Do you need anything else for me for this one? Yeah, just say there's some rude things. I'm not recording this end or anything. (laughs) Really, really. So if I say and boop and definitely only R2D2 is disgusted. disgusted.